Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're all about producing content where you can be inspired by and learn from amazing female entrepreneurs and leaders to help you achieve and even exceed your career goals. Before we begin this week's episode, though, it would mean a huge amount if you could rate and review our show if you haven't already. Consider it as your kind deed for the day. And we'd love to hear from you. So why not follow us or message us on LinkedIn? Mention the podcast and we'll be all ears. And now enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another Don't Stop Us Now episode. Our guest this week is a truly pioneering woman in so many fields. You know, it's true to say that if you live in Australia today, that many of the rights you take for granted came about thanks to the determined and courageous stand of feminist pioneer, businesswoman and writer, Wendy McCarthy. From campaigning tirelessly for women's rights to smashing the glass ceiling time after time, Wendy, now in her 80s, has done it all. It's no accident she's been described as a national treasure. That's a totally fair description. Wendy has done so many things. She's been a teacher, an executive, a founder, and company director. And across all these endeavors, she's worked for change in education, family planning, human rights, public health, overseas aid, conservation, heritage media, and the arts. So you get you get the feeling she's done so much. You know what? I'm just tired just thinking about it. Yeah. Now, in this episode, you'll hear how one profound lesson as a young girl has shaped her life ever since, how she's learned to take risks and not be intimidated, how trying to retire at 60 was a huge mistake, and how Wendy thinks about claiming her space when she walks into a room. So enjoy this episode with the true pioneer and trailblazer, Wendy McCarthy. Wendy McCarthy, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's wonderful to have you on the show. It really is. I'm going to start with a, a question that our listeners will be used to, which is, if you had to describe what you do at a dinner party to someone you just met, how would you do that briefly? Oh, hello. My name is Wendy McCarthy. Pleased to be sitting beside you at the dinner table. And currently, I'm a writer, and I'm hoping to keep doing that for the rest of my life. But I've had a lot of adventures as a feminist activist for the last 80 years or 20 years. Take out the first 20 <laughs> and tell me what you do. Brilliant. We know that for more than, as you said, 60 years, you've been on the leading edge of feminism, the corporate world and public life in Australia. You know, I really think that your trailblazing advocacy and leadership have made you so wildly respected. And, you know, I think many would say revered. When you look back at what you've achieved and where you've spent your time, is there a thread or a commonality that joins all the dots of your career? I think when I reflect on my life, especially as I've done while I've been writing this book, 
the pandemic in some ways was good for me. I just tucked myself up on the beach and said, I'm going to do this. Life after 60 is not what I'd imagined it would be, so I'm going to settle down. <laughs> and the thread is really partly in the title of the book, Don't Be Too Polite Girls, and that really is about just please don't tell me what to do and to be obedient without telling me why. I want a reason to know why when I was three I couldn't be left-handed. I wanted a reason to know why if I didn't want to be pregnant I was at risk of being sent to jail for 10 years if I got an abortion in New South Wales and as would the provider have been. And I think somewhere in that time I learned what I call in my own head the sort of how to take risks and how to measure consequences. And what I learned is that almost all the consequences that people told me about that would happen if I did A, B, C, D, E turned out not to be true. It was all rubbish. And once I got to that, I knew what questions to ask. And therefore, I could never really be intimidated. And it's a long time since I've been intimidated by someone in any way. Physically, I could be, but not intellectually or mentally. I'm not frightened anymore. I can work out the consequences of change. Yeah. That helps you take a risk. Was there a moment, do you think, in your childhood or your early adulthood where that insight sort of came to you or that sort of understanding? No, I think it's really looking back when I think about why did I do it. But I mean, I know one day when I was about 12 and I'm walking in the streets of Forbes with a few kids after school and a boy says to me, anyway, your father's a drunk. And I just looked at him and said, so? And he didn't know what to say. If I'd cried, if I'd run away and hidden, or if I'd argued, everything would have been different. And it's somehow knowing when not to engage and not accepting responsibility for something that was beyond my control. And that was a profound lesson really and it probably coloured lots of things I did in my life. And do you remember feeling scared when you did that? No, I wasn't scared. The emotion was probably partly anger, partly shame, but a sense of I'm not going to discuss my father with you And that's a bit about family pride, I suppose, at one level. But you can't blame me for that. It's just not fair. And it's that sense of fairness and justice that I apply to most of the rules in my life. You know, is this fair? Is this just? Can this be changed so that it's more fair or more just? And mostly it can. Wendy, I'm really curious. You mentioned a short while ago that life after 60 isn't what you expected. How so? Well, when I started teaching, the age of retirement for women was 50, and then it moved to 55. And it sounds silly, but those things move into your brain. It says something about what your life cycle is going to be. And it suggests that at the end of your childbearing years and maybe the beginning of your menopause that you are suddenly useless and that there's no life after that. I mean, that did change during my lifetime and largely it changed through the work of women in the education unions. It also meant, though, that what you did was a job. It wasn't a career. And if you were looking at a career, by the time you got married, which was expected, you had children, suddenly it was over because you worked part-time, you didn't have continuity 
of work. And I think somewhere in there, it's hard to get rid of that conditioning. In my case, when I turned 60, I'd just become a grandmother and I'd moved to the farm and thought I might live now at the farm. My husband was farming at the time and I love the bush and I love farming. And I thought I'm just finishing a raft of jobs that I've been engaged in and maybe maybe it's time to change things. So one thing I changed in the family was that we'd build a farmhouse, a new farmhouse, and that was fine. I went down there and did that and sort of half work from there, set up an office with a satellite as you could get in those days. And that preoccupied me for about six months. And then I thought Gordon can now be the centre of the family. He can look after the farmhouse. I'll go back and rent a place in Sydney and I'll work from there. He can take on the domestic role in the family that has always been mine. Now, you're giving away a bit of power when you do that, but I thought it was a reasonable deal and he was pretty happy to do it. But I think then I realised that going to imagining a life just being talking about your grandchildren or talking about a farm where you weren't actually the farmer, I would be going back to a life that I nearly had once when I was a a wife at home. And I I remember just sort of saying to a friend one, I was talking and I said, what on earth did I think I was doing going down there and thinking I could commute two hours? It was fine when I was a chancellor in Canberra, I'd go down to university and take two hours. But suddenly I was no there and I'm sociable and I'm thinking, I'm doing this to please other people because I think that's what they expect of me. Basically, they all said, thank God you've stopped doing that because you were driving us crazy. Just go back and go to work, will you? Get out of our way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's classic. The retirement that was not meant to be, which is a good thing for everybody else, I have to say. And, you know, if you think back on your career, having read your book and listeners won't have, but you've had such a long and rich career. This is probably tricky, but if you had to pick a moment or an achievement that's been the most impactful for you in hindsight, what would that be? Well, I think the most impactful thing was becoming a teacher because I'm more or less still a teacher. You know, I'm the teacher mentor, I'm the teacher company director, I'm the community teacher, educator, etc. So a life and a training where your first occupation enables you to research and synthesise and speak in front of a group really sets you up for public life. And we just need to think differently about teaching in order to encourage more teachers to think that way and to be valued in our community. So I taught for some years and when I couldn't teach the way I wanted to because they wouldn't let married women go back and there was no maternity leave, etc., I had to find a different career. So I moved up. The new classroom became the community where I was working with family planning. And you talk about that in the book, how, you know, you sort of were a teacher and then you were sort of passed over for a permanent teaching position and, you know, you decided then that if you were going to be at the bottom of the pecking order, then you'd better reinvent yourself. How did you go about doing that? I was working in TAFE and I loved it, but I just didn't get the jobs. And I know people think, you know, I must have got every job I went for. I didn't. The system told me that I was not what they wanted and when I questioned it. It took me ages to question the bloke. I said, you know, how come I didn't even get an interview for my job? He said, well, you don't go to the pub on Friday night. And I said, well, why would I? Why would I want to go to the pub with you when I'm with you all week? That obviously was just unacceptable. 
But in a way, it's the metaphor that someone else's control. It wasn't about how effective you were in the classroom. I wasn't being measured on the things that I thought that mattered about being a teacher. So I thought, right, I've got to find something else to do. And family planning had got money from the Whitlam government to run education in the community and throughout the system. And I put my hand up and I got the job. And that was the beginning of a life, Claire, of, in a way, startup jobs. So there'd been a volunteer doing that job. I professionalised that job, got the money for it. And most of the things I've done subsequently have been first of species, so first woman to do it. But I've tried to make sure to think about it in a way that is a startup, what's the best possible process and practice for this job. And inevitably, the person who came after me paid twice as well because that was completely my Achilles heel asking for money. I was terribly old before I got better at that. I did understand that there always has to be a first person in the job and the better you can do it, the more likely it is that other people will want to do it if it's worth doing. And so in a sense, we did plan differently when I came into that role. And that is true of most of the things that I've done. You know, I was the first woman who wasn't a lawyer to run a law practice. Now, I found it excessively tedious and not about justice, (laughs) but about billing. However, I learnt a lot and they did. I'm curious and I like variety. I've done wacky jobs because I want to see how they worked. I love that about you. It sounds like on the one hand, with teaching, the system told you you weren't going to be successful. And in the end, you decided to do something different because you knew you could make an impact somewhere else. And get promoted. And get get promoted. Absolutely. But that really you're an entrepreneur at heart. You know, you really are. Yes. And I'm really interested because, you know, one of the entrepreneurial things you've done is you set up a mentoring business, which now your daughter Sophie runs. You spent a lot of time mentoring people and giving advice. What advice do you give others when they find themselves in a role where they feel like they've been passed over or they aren't progressing enough in general? Great mentoring isn't about giving advice, but great mentoring is about providing a space for people to hear and trust their own voice. And once they do that, they take their own advice. Yeah, great point. I might fill in around the edges and I might give case studies and so on. But in the end, when someone is well mentored, they leave the program confident of the decisions they'll make and coming back to, you know, understanding what consequences are and understanding. You might give advice about arrivals and exits, you know, which I think are two of the great moments in life, how we arrive and depart a room, a job, a life. They're really profoundly important things and they have an effect on us and an effect on the people around us. Mm. So when I'm looking, I ask women to do sometimes a bit of role play about how they interpret the conversation and to put them in the shoes of the other person and I might play them. They're just lots of little techniques, but fundamentally, I think of it about, you know, when you go for those photo shoots and they've got those beautiful big white round screens, and I always think of the mentorings like that. You've got that screen there. It's sort of invisible, but the words bounce back to you. Hmm. And then that's when you know when to go for advice. And as your mentor, if you ask for advice, of course I'd give it. But in the first instance, I want you to know what it is that you want to know. And when you come to that point, you've almost found the solution. Yeah, I love that. That's really important. I'm intrigued about your comment about how arrivals and departures are really important 
Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean? When someone walks into a room, we know something about them. There are so many nonverbal cues and it matters. And it's why I think things like clothes matter. I don't care whether you come to me, you know, dressed in denim jeans or dressed in a suit. But what I want you to understand is all that stuff is theatre. And you can change what you wear and you can change how you look in order to fit. You're not selling out. It just is in order to fit into a space before you claim the space as your own. So when you meet someone the first time, that's a moment. I mean, even arriving, if you think about birthing, which is where I started my political life, a child being born with two parents in the room from the moment of its birth and all the way through the process is a lucky child. I think it's also about how we die. You know, my father's funeral was miserable, 11 people, and, you know, his mother wouldn't speak to my mother, but she spoke to me because I was her favourite granddaughter and it put me in a really tricky place. But because he was an alcoholic, she sort of blamed us and it wasn't fair or just. And I remember thinking this is a terrible way to say goodbye. And I've felt really strongly since then that we need ways to acknowledge departures. And, you know, it can be as simple as someone going away on a holiday. Just imagine if they don't come back, just think about it. You know, take each day as it comes. Let's look at the chances and think about how they depart. And as I said, I've I've kind of lived that ever since and thought that I want people to have the opportunity. I mean, they can have a say in it, of course, but to say goodbye is a really profoundly important thing. And to leave in anger in a job is not good. And you've got to be strategic in your career about when you leave. I decided to leave one job three months before I left because I knew I was not in the right place anymore. And I worked out how I would do it to cause the least aggravation to people and they felt really pleased. They almost thought it was their idea, not quite, but we all knew that I'd done everything I could do there, even though I'd gone for three years and this was year one. But I said to them, I just don't think it's the right place for me anymore and I found someone who's willing and very capable to be interviewed, but I think you should accept that. And they said, yep, and you're too speedy for us anyway, so we couldn't take another year, so that was good. (laughs) That's funny. That's funny. You know, I, having sat around a board table with you, because of course you and I, we sat on the plan board together. I was really surprised when I read your book about the fact that you said that when you were asked to join a financial services board, you talked about your usual self-doubt about your capacity to do the role, which I found like really surprising actually, but in some ways comforting as well. This is in your early 70s. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, whether you still feel self-doubt and if you do, how you get through it? Well, I think it's a two-part process. First of all, somebody invites you and you think, well, yes, if somebody thinks I can do that and I'd like to do it, I probably can do it. But up until somewhere in my life, I would go through the thing about, you know, well, I don't have a PhD in that, I'm not trained, etc. and what sort of preparation should I do? Whereas I wasn't hearing what, in every case it was a bloke, was saying is we'd like you to join our board, we think you'd be a great director, even if they didn't say that, they're by, implicitly they are. So why did I need to have it? And if I was perfect, why would they want me? And why would I want to go? Because I don't want to go to a new job unless there's a challenge in it. And the challenge is about learning about that business. 
which is the antithesis of what many men do in company roles. They think that if you're a finance whiz, you've got to stay in the finance tunnel or a legal whiz. Well, I don't believe that, and it's not really what governance is meant to be. You're a group of people whose composite skills ought to look like the place they're serving. And I worried about the class action thing because it's probably the brightest group of people I've you know, intellectually clever people I've worked with. This is the financial services company that you were joining. Yeah. And also, you know, they talk about money in an eye-glazing way, but, of course, talking about money in an eye-glazing way can actually just be like playing Monopoly. And I said yes, and it's a bit about, you know, I say to people, say yes and think about how later. That's what I did, and I was the first woman. So there's a responsibility about being the first woman too. Yeah which I always feel, which is ridiculous, but I do. And then I think, well, I've got to do my homework. So I do my homework and I bring a fresh eye to it and I sit there and I observe the people for the first couple of meetings and I realise there's just a bunch of humans in the room. We're all trying to do our best around this company and there are some people who've got better financial skills, but mostly I have better people skills. Mm. I am good at helping people work together. Yeah. And I'm good at asking the unaskable questions because I'm not frightened of asking those questions. I was when I started, but, you know, not for a long time have I been frightened. But if I was going to be frightened, that board and the amount of money that it controlled and managed would have been the board that would have made me the most frightened. But in the end, I managed to get three women on the board and somehow or other we all managed perfectly well. Yeah, well, that's great. You know, I like the way you talk about, I think, first of all, the fact that you have self-doubt, you know, such an incredibly accomplished person has self-doubt is actually comforting for many of us because it's kind of a normal human thing. And the other thing is just the way that you're sort of moving through it in the sense that you're saying yes, (laughs) even with some self-doubt. And you think about how afterwards taking risks But also it sounds as if you also do your homework as well. So you get yourself prepared. I do as best I can. And I also say to myself, well, what's the worst that could happen? Well, the worst that could happen was I didn't like it. It wasn't a good appointment for any of us. And I quit. Wendy, you know, you've packed so much into your life and career and still are doing so. What one or two habits do you have, do you think, that have allowed you to be so productive and achieve so much? I'm a good sleeper. Ever since I've been a student, I've thought of each day as a habit. I think play eight, sleep eight and work eight is a pretty good routine. I like that. Play eight, sleep eight and work eight. Yeah. Work eight. And when it gets out of whack, don't let it go for more than three weeks. And I heard that someone came to university and we all went off because we heard he was going to talk about sex. And actually he talked about managing your life and that was his recipe. And I thought, it's so simple. I can do that. And basically that's how I do it. And I do tend to live in the present and I move on without regret. I also look after my health and at 80, if you don't, you're pretty mad because you can get replacement knees but you can't really get a new robotic body or anything yet. So you do have to recognise that dancing isn't as easy. (laughs) And walking long distances, my daughter Sophie tried to get me to do that. 38-kilometre walk, and I said, Sophie McCarthy, I couldn't possibly do that, you know. I walk my four or five k's a day with a dog and that's about it. Well, that's pretty impressive nonetheless. So 
And I do do yoga and Pilates and I've always included as part of my play eight hours exercise. Right. Yeah, I was about to say which category do all these great healthy activities go into? But sleep is good too. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Wendy, what's the most common piece of advice you find yourself giving to women? I mean, generally, I think that we should frame our lives in terms of thinking it's a 50-50 world in a perfect world. That means 50% of the responsibility and 50% of the fun and 50% of whatever's going. And that means the governance of our institutions, the participation in government, so getting paid at equal value, I say you must claim your share. But that does include the responsibility. It can't be on the old-fashioned rules of being kept by a man and that the man's not the financial plan. You have to claim your autonomy. I just want them to understand it's so much better when you do. It's so exciting to be half of the action. And I want the women to be half of the action. And right now, I think it's the greatest opportunity for a change in government is for the women to use their vote. The last thing I'd say is I think that's part of older women's responsibilities, I think, to put their arms out to catch young women when they fall and pick them up and shoo them on a bit. And that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. That's wonderful to hear. And for listeners overseas, yes, we have a federal election in about six weeks' time and a lot of female independent parliamentarians or want-to-be parliamentarians are standing and they do present a prospect of very real change and progress in a lot of important policy areas, depending on obviously your political point of view, I guess. (laughs) It's a subjective thing, but Wendy and I are aligned there. (laughs) I think that's really important and I think it's about women as independents, the individual women having the courage to do that. But it also confronts the community with the whole idea of change and responsibility and the willingness and wisdom of women to share it. And it's silly blokes who don't get that. It's as if there's been this brewing, for want of a better word, impatience that has led to this magnificent movement and momentum of women saying enough And if I have to be the change I want to see, then so be it. And I'm putting my hat in the ring. It's quite phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. With your incredible perspective of how you've been at the forefront of campaigning for positive change in Australia over many, many decades, how would you summarise, you know, where you think women stand in Australia today? Well, they're the best educated women in the world. They're number 25 in gender parity in terms of pay. So there's a big gap there and they need to use their education in order to fix that. They are in fewer leadership positions than they were 15, 20 years ago. They're down around about 50 in leadership. So we've lost our leadership in the world in a way that is quite shocking to women of my age. And the gift of the feminist revolution of the 60s was education and better health and the capacity to manage our reproduction. So I think I'd say the worst thing that can happen is that you fail and you just pick yourself up and do it again. But if you want to have the fun and the engagement, you've really got to stand up now and start looking around at people 
who think the same way as you and keep making change because change is not automatically incremental and it needs vigilance and engagement to keep on happening and change is fun and healthy. Yeah, and I mean, you know that so well in particular, I think, you know, I want to tell listeners about the changes that you led over Gosh, how many years for abortion rights in New South Wales? Well, I suppose over 50 years. Over 50 years. So you started 50 years ago putting your name in a newspaper ad to say that you had had an abortion, which at the time was illegal and, in fact, was illegal only until 2019. It was illegal to have an abortion in New South Wales. And you led the campaign in 2019, 50 years after you started with other women in the campaign. So it's a long game. (laughs) It's a long game, but, you know, it's about getting out there and trying to make these big changes, isn't it? Yes, it is a long game. And in the case of abortion, one of the things that people didn't understand is that you could have a termination of pregnancy on the medical benefit system legally under certain rulings, but it was still on the Crimes Act. And if someone wanted to prosecute, you could go to jail for 10 years. And the people, of course, the people who couldn't get access to a termination easily were the people who always suffer, the less educated, the poorest, the geographically remote, and that's really what was happening. So, Wendy, you've written this fantastic book. You know, it's really incredible reading about your life, and it's called Don't Be Too Polite, Girls. What would you ideally like people to take away or do differently as a result of reading your book? I hope when people read my book that they enjoy the stories that I have to tell. The stories are about what we did, how we feel about it, how finding a better world for women, a world that you inhabit now, was not a chore but a joy. And then I hope that you'll hop on the bandwagon and learn to fight for the things that you care about. Oh, Wendy, that's such a wonderful summary. And I just love it. It's been such a joy to speak to you. And it's very inspiring to hear about sort of the joy that you found in making such important change for us as women. So thank you for all your work. And if listeners wanted to learn more about you or your book, is there any sort of digital address you'd want to send them to to learn more? You can Google me or tweet me or go to LinkedIn. Well, Wendy, it's been such a joy to speak to you and thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Take care. I think Wendy's comment about realising that, you know, the potential negative consequences of taking risks are nearly always nowhere near as bad as you imagine and how that has freed her to say and do what she thinks is right and not be intimidated. I think that's so incredibly empowering. I think we should all take that on board, or certainly I should, especially with her decades of experience. I think risk-taking is something most of us could probably all be better at. I totally agree. Um, You know, the thing that really resonated with me was how Wendy talked about how we all have to claim our autonomy and also our responsibilities in order to ensure we have a world that is more 50-50 balanced in terms of men and women having power and control. You know, and, and I think that's really important because if we don't step into that power we do lose these things that you know people like her have really worked hard to 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 win win for us 
you know and so I think we do have we can't just sort of sit by and hope other people are going to do it for us we have to stand into that and take responsibility yeah it's sort of related in a way isn't it to that kind of bravery you need to take the risks and to actually be very rational about potential consequences of risk taking versus emotional because um, you know I think the, the common thread with those two things are, is, is courage yeah, yeah absolutely and you know Wendy has buckets of it yeah clearly so well that's this episode done and dusted we'll be back with another episode in two weeks time so in the meantime have fun stay safe and ciao for now even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.